Back together here. Good to see you all this morning. As we get back into the fall routine, fall rhythms, for those of you who have school-age children, um, life gets a little more rhythm here in these moments. All right, um, so we're starting a new sermon series today. We last week finished up our summer sermon series, and this week uh, we're starting a new one. So we have preached through... Uh, since we started uh, almost four years ago as a church, we have preached through Ephesians, Habakkuk, Ruth, the Gospel of John, Ecclesiastes, Jonah, and now we will preach through a New Testament book, Hebrews. So typically, when we start a new series here at Center Church, uh, we'll just kind of dive into the text and I'll just tack on a short little introduction for that book, maybe five to ten minutes. But today, uh, for a variety of reasons uh, and a variety of issues that we find in Hebrews, I'm going to commit a whole sermon as an introduction, uh, introductory sermon this morning. So we're not, we're not going to dive into the text this morning, uh, but I just will we'll look at some parts of it. But this is more to kind of give a high-level picture here. And here's my hope w in doing this. My hope is that this will give us clarity as to how we can more effectively or most effectively read Hebrews uh, as we go through this. So, and my, my encouragement for you guys is that you would read through this book uh, multiple times even. I am, I am not a fast reader, uh, and I read through it again this morning, and it was less than 40 minutes. And so it, it doesn't take a ton of time just to sit down and read through the whole book. When you do that, you get a pitch better picture of the whole of the book. You can see themes that pop up. So I'd encourage you guys multiple times throughout this series to just sit down and, and read this book. This will be a longer series. Uh, it's planned to take us into May of next year. So we will be spending some time in the book of Hebrews. So settle in, grab some coffee if you like it, and let's enjoy it together. So Hebrews is a really interesting book in a variety of ways. So it begins with an extensive section on angels. So we're going to have an opportunity to brush up on our angelology. Uh, I don't know if every, any of you have ever studied angels, but we're going to spend some time looking at that. Uh, throughout this book, there, there's also a number of warning passages. Some people don't like the book of Hebrews because there's these warning passages, such as this one right here. Hebrews 10, verses 26 and 27. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. So j just a quick survey. Does anybody have that one on a coffee cup? No? No, I didn't think so, right? That, that's not one that we want to plaster on a coffee cup and remind ourselves of. But we have an opportunity in the midst of the series to wrestle with some of these passages that maybe some of us like to skim over really quickly when we read the Bible, or maybe they create fear in us 
uh, and we don't really want to engage with them and we get to wrestle with these and really understand what is going on in these verses. Another aspect of Hebrews is that it quotes the Old Testament more than any other New Testament book. So it's going to provide us many opportunities to understand how the Old Testament and the New Testament fit together. So there's this reality, we're preaching a book in the New Testament, right? But we're probably going to preach about as much in the Old Testament as we will in the New Testament because it cites, quotes, alludes to the Old Testament so frequently. So we will be trying to learn how do we tie this story together from what's happening previously to what we're reading now in Hebrews. Most importantly, though, this book is heavy on Jesus. We will learn so much about Jesus. For some of us, we'll be reminded of things. We'll be reminded of our ongoing need of Jesus and how he is better than everything else that exists. Jesus is better. And that's the subtitle of our series. Jesus is better. And so we'll keep coming back to that theme. He is better. He's better than the, the cup of coffee that you had this morning or that you're drinking even right now. He, he's better than your team winning a football game. He's better than whatever it is that you look forward to and you say, this is the thing that drives me and motivates me every day. He is better than that. And that's what Hebrews is going to drive home over and over for us. Jesus is hanging on the cross at the end of the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verse 30. He's hanging on the cross, and he says there, it is finished. This is a great summary of Hebrews. Hebrews depicts Jesus as God's final word to humanity. Jesus is God's final word to us. And so we want to look at him, we want to gaze at him, we want to learn from him. Okay, so that, that's a little bit of some themes that we'll get in uh, the book of Hebrews. We're going to come back to that whole Old Testament piece here in a little bit. Uh, but what I want to do now is I just I want to talk through some of the mechanics of the book and help you understand, remind myself as well, just about some of the mechanics of the book that, so that it can help us better understand um, how we can read this and, and interpret it for ourselves. So first of all, let's look at the authorship of this book. Authorship. So the matter of the author is a pretty unique aspect of Hebrews as it compares to other books in the New Testament. Because when you look at other books in the New Testament, what you find is that many of them have a very clear greeting at the beginning, right? Th this, is, this book is, or this letter is being written from this person to these people. So we know that many letters in the New Testament, it was written by Peter, or by James, or by Paul, or by John. And, and so there's clarity, that's who wrote this letter to these people. If you go to the beginning of Hebrews, you don't find that. Hebrews doesn't have that clear greeting at the beginning of it. In fact, there's no greeting whatsoever. And there's no designation as you read through the book as to who might have written the book. We don't know. And there's not a ton of clues. There's a, there's a clue in at the end of the book, chapter 13, verse 23, where it talks about the author has some uh, knowledge of or relationship with a man named Timothy, okay? So, so we can kind of peg it around that, but, but there's not a lot else 
that we get from this. And so, because of that, throughout history, there's been many suggestions that have been given. Oh, I think it's this person or that person. So let me give just a few of the people that, that have been postulated as people that maybe wrote this book. Many people say Paul wrote the book. So Paul wrote a lot of the books in the New Testament. Paul was well-versed in Judaism, in the Old Covenant, the old way of doing things. Um, but one thing about Paul, when he wrote a letter, he always identified himself at the beginning of the letter. A and we don't have that here in Hebrews. Uh, another thing about Paul is that the language and the themes that we find in Hebrews, uh, they're different, different from what we know of in a lot of other of Paul's other letters that he wrote to churches. So, so it's not that likely. I don't think it's, it's real likely that it was Paul who wrote the book of Hebrews. Uh, another person that's given as a possibility is a man named Barnabas. Okay, Barnabas was someone who knew Timothy. So we know that. We also read in Acts 4.36 that he was a son of encouragement and he was a Levite. Okay, so him being a Levite, uh, he would understand how the temple functioned. He would understand a lot of kind of the inner workings of the, Judy, uh, of the re Israelite religion. And so it would make sense based on the content of what we find in the book of Hebrews that Barnabas may have written it. Also, what we find in Hebrews, it's very encouraging. There's a lot of exhortation in it. Despite what I said about those warning passages, there's a ton of encouragement in the book, a ton of good news, and him being the son of encouragement, it makes one think, oh, maybe he wrote the book. Another example, or another uh, person that's put forth as maybe writing the book is a man named Apollos. It says in Acts, the book of Acts, chapter 18, it says this, now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. He powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So it's clear when we read through Hebrews, it's clear that the author of Hebrews knew scripture really well. Okay, he understood the Old Testament really well. And he was really intent in, on ensuring that Jesus was rightly known. He, he wants his readers to see how Jesus pops up over and over in the Old Testament. And so this is the description that we get of Apollos. It also says about Apollos that he was an eloquent man. And Hebrews is considered to be the book in the New Testament that has the most eloquent Greek uh, of any of the books. And so many people would say Apollos possibly wrote it. There's a number of other suggestions that people give, but at the end of the day, what we conclude uh, is the same thing that Origen, an early church uh, father theologian, said. He said, who wrote Hebrews? In truth, only God knows. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. But what we do know is that the author is likely a Jew who knew the Old Testament scriptures really well, inside and out. We know that he was a contemporary of Timothy, and we know that he was inspired by God, because the whole of Hebrews fits so well with the rest of the Bible, especially when we start looking at all of the Old Testament citations, allusions, quotations. It fits so well with what's happening in the rest of the Bible.
Okay, so that, that's the author, which is a big question mark, right? All that for a question mark, essentially, right? Um, okay, then let's look at the title and the audience of the book. So the title of the book is Hebrews, which is another name for Israelite, okay? So it, it's likely a letter to Jewish, Jewish people, and in time, over time, what happened was the, the title got changed from Hebrews to, to the Hebrews, uh, and so... Uh, that's a pretty good clue that it was a letter to Jewish people. And, and what we find just in the content of the book is that there's a very clear movement within the book to find, uh, to connect all of these things in the old covenant, God's old way of communicating with his people and helping move people to God's new way of communicating with his people. So movement from the old covenant to the new covenant. And so it seems to make the most sense that it was written to a bunch of Israelite people who are still struggling, still wrestling with, still enmeshed with the old way of doing things. And the author is trying to pull them forward into the new way of doing things as Jesus taught. And as it pertains to the audience, it says in Hebrews 13, verse 24, Greet all your leaders and all the saints, those who come from Italy, send you greetings. So, so what we read when it says, those who come from Italy send you greetings, is very, very likely a connection to Italy. Most likely what's going on is that this is a group of Jews who are in Italy, and so this author is writing to people who are in Italy at that time. The date of this book, the, it's likely written in the 60s AD, okay? So it's about 10 to 30 years after Jesus uh, was on the scene. And what we find in the book, there's a large emphasis on the temple. Temple rituals, temple practices, and function of the temple. And so many people would say it most likely was written before 70 AD. And the reason for that is because in 70 AD is when the temple, the main temple that, that Jews would go to and worship at, was destroyed. Okay? And so the fact that there's such an emphasis on the temple and temple rituals would suggest that that is still in function and people are still attending there. Now, we also read in Hebrews 12.4, it says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And that might be like, well, why is that important in terms of the date? So in 64 AD, there was an emperor... Uh, named Emperor Nero uh, in Rome, who uh, began a major persecution against Christians. Many, many Christians died because they were a Christian. And, and so when it says here, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, uh, one could assume that that has not happened yet, that that massive persecu persecution has not begun as of yet. And, and thinking about this, if God is working in such a way to write this letter through this author to these people, almost as a way to prepare them, because there's a number of things we'll find in this book that would be very helpful for these people if they were about to undergo some severe persecution. So the date, uh, we can't pin it down exactly as with many books in the Bible, but there are some clues that can be helpful in in guiding us as to where it most likely probably was written. Okay, uh, genre or the type of literature. So when you look at the New Testament, 
much of the New Testament is written as narrative, like a story form, right? Or it's, um, there's letters to churches. Uh, so Paul wrote a lot of letters to churches. So Hebrews is definitely a letter to a group of people, okay? But when you read through Hebrews, what, but what you find is that it functions very much like a sermon, okay? And so, so it'll work really well for us as we preach through this book. It has repeated themes. It has lots of warnings and encouragements for the reader. And so we basically will be preaching a sermon as we go through this. Okay, so those are some of the mechanics, okay? That, there's a reason why I usually don't spend a lot of time on that because uh, people oftentimes don't love that. But if you're someone who loves that kind of thing, um, I've got books, and I can refer you to more resources um, if you would really like to dig into that more. So now what I want to do is I want to look, start looking at some of the text itself, and uh, not specific, but just kind of generally some, some text to help us with our reading of it. So I want to look, first of all, at the author's use of the Old Testament, because what we find is the author's use of the Old Testament is unprecedented in the New Testament. It, we could say it's excessive, okay? His quotation and allusion of the Old Testament is excessive. But as we get into the author's Old Testament quotations and allusions, I think we're going to find something interesting, at least more than one thing interesting, but I'm going to highlight one thing that's interesting right now. We're going to find that the author of Hebrews seems to quote the Old Testament in seemingly inappropriate or wrong ways at times. Uh, we might find ourselves asking the question, did he use the Old Testament correctly there? I, I had this conversation with one of my kids recently where I was like, I don't think that word means what you think it means kind of a thing, right? Um, I, I think we get that sometimes when we're reading the book of Hebrews in the way that the author quotes the Old Testament because he's talking about Sabbath, a day of rest, or he's talking about festivals, or, or he's talking about something that this Old Testament writer had no idea of when he was writing. But the author of Hebrews is stating that's referring to Jesus. That's pointing to Jesus. And the use of the Old Testament in Hebrews, what we're going to find, I think, is that it's going to push some of our conceptions as to how we read the Old Testament as well. So I want to try and help us in that regard, just to prepare us as we're going to go through this book. So I want to give kind of some methodological helps for us as we're going to be reading the book of Hebrews. So the author is a teacher, or he's teaching from what we would call uh, a Pesher method, okay? Something called the Pesher method. And the author is also employing a theological framework known as census planoris, okay? So basically, I'm probably not going to use these words again in this series, okay? D just so you know. Uh, but what these technical words mean is when we get to the New Testament, we find that what's written in the Old Testament gains fuller meaning. It gains fuller meaning. So Pesher has kind of this, this is that function for us. So let me give you a little example here. In Psalm uh, chapter 110, verse 1, King David writes that psalm, and he writes, 
the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So when we read this in context in the book of Psalms, this verse, as David is writing it, clearly refers to David when he wrote it, okay? He has himself in mind here. But the author of Hebrews quotes this same verse in reference to Jesus. There's a greater, fuller meaning once Jesus comes on the scene. So it's important to note here, it doesn't make the initial meaning untrue, okay? It's not a contradiction. It doesn't mean that was wrong. It's just broadening out. It's giving us a fuller meaning as to what is going on. So it was true that da what David was writing referred to him, greatest king in the history of Israel. But in a greater way, in a fuller way, it refers to Jesus. And this is census plenor. The original author may not have seen this meaning, but God intended it all along. Okay? And, and we find this throughout the Bible. This isn't just Hebrews, but it's, there's a lot of concentration of it in the book of Hebrews. But we find this throughout the New Testament, where an Old Testament author is writing one thing. At times they might know how it's going to be fulfilled in the future. At times they might not know. But whether they knew or not, God is ultimately authoring things in such a way that there will be an ultimate, fuller fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Okay, uh, another methodological help here. Um, something called typology. Typology. So this is basically reading the Old Testament in such a way that people and places and events typify or point forward to something or someone else. Okay? Oftentimes what we're going to find, they're pointing forward to Jesus. So they're pulling the story forward, getting us ultimately to Jesus. A and this is unbelievably crucial for us to be able to read and understand the Old Testament. So I want to give you one example here of what I'm talking about with typology. So if you go back to the second book of the Bible, it's called Exodus, okay? And Exodus records the exodus of God's people out of slavery in Egypt. Okay, so God's people are enslaved in Egypt. Um, the king, who or the pharaoh who's in charge of Egypt, no longer knows, remembers, cares about God's people, so they're a forgotten people, uh, at least in importance. But they're not forgotten in the fact that they are slaves, okay? They are oppressed people, and so they cry out to God, help us, save us, rescue us from this great oppression. So God hears his people, and he comes to rescue them, okay? So his means of rescuing them then is he's going to pour out some plagues upon Egypt. And what's going to happen is these plagues are intended to move the Pharaoh to the point where he says, you can be free. You can leave my nation. You are no longer our slaves. So what happens is God sends these plagues. Pharaoh says, okay, you can go. But then he changes his mind. He pulls them back. And there's nine of these plagues until we get to the tenth one. Okay? And God tells his people, this is what you need to do in preparation for this tenth plague. He tells them, go take a lamb, a perfect, unblemished lamb, 
I want you to slaughter that lamb. I want you to prepare this, this a meal in a specific way. But when you slaughter that lamb, I want you to take the blood of that lamb and I want you to paint it on the doorpost of your house because my spirit is going to move through this land. And when my spirit moves through this land because of the disobedience of Pharaoh himself, the firstborn in every household and every herd and so forth is going to die. So the Israelite people, they slaughter their lambs, they paint the blood on the doorposts of their house. God's spirit comes and the firstborn die throughout the land of Egypt. And ultimately, God's people are then sent out of Egypt. So then we fast forward to the New Testament and we read in 1 Corinthians 5-7, it says there, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So that lamb that was sacrificed by those people to paint the, the blood on their doorposts was considered the Passover lamb. And the idea being God would pass over those houses. His wrath would not be poured out on those families. And what we find in the New Testament is Jesus is referred to God's Passover lamb, our Passover lamb. And in that, Jesus is taking God's wrath upon himself. His blood is shed for us, for those who trust in him, then we don't need to experience to suffer God's wrath. And, and in this, then, what we find is that this story is coming full circle. That, that wasn't just some random event that was happening back in the Old Testament. God was telling a story that would ultimately get fulfilled in a much greater way in Jesus Christ himself. So this is typology, and this happens over and over. And this, for me, is one of the things that made the Bible come alive for me. I began to see the story being told in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and so forth is the same story that's being told in the New Testament. For years, I thought these were just disconnected books, that they had no relation to one another. And when I began to see how, and I had people helping me see how these fit together, I saw the beauty and the power of God's word, and I was captivated by it. And that's part of my prayer for you guys as we go through this series, that you would be captivated by this story that God is telling. You'd be captivated by the way in which it is written. So the use of typology. I, I don't talk a lot about typology in the sense of defining that word and so forth. I think I've probably done it once or twice since we started the church. But I do preach this way regularly. I try and help us understand what happened here is connected to what's happening over here. So my intent in saying all of this is to encourage us to read the Bible with a Christ-centered perspective. We should find Jesus everywhere. On every single page of the Bible, Jesus is there. He is the lens through which we read the Bible. He is the means by which the Bible makes sense to us. 
And this has been true throughout history. So this is, this is not Kevin just trying to come up with a kind of a neat way to, to make sense of the Bible, okay? So that I'm, I'm not trying to be creative. I'm not trying to be new at all, okay? This is the way people have read the Bible throughout history. Let me give you a few examples. Uh, Irenaeus or Irenaeus, uh, you can choose how you want to pronounce this. He said, if anyone reads the scripture with attention, he will find in them an account of Christ. I think, I think he was third century uh, theologian, uh, church father. Um, and, and so we're going way back with this, right? And he's saying, if you're going to read the Bible with attention, you're going to read it closely, you will find Jesus. You can't help but find Jesus throughout it. Augustine says, the New Testament lies concealed in the old. The old lies revealed in the new. And, and this is what I hope we're going to do in Hebrews. I hope the Old Testament will be revealed for us as we read through Hebrews. And then lastly, a woman named Kathleen Norris, writing about uh, 5th and 6th century monks, she said, their approach was far less narcissistic than our own tends to be, in that their goal when reading scripture was to see Christ in every verse and not a mirror image of themselves. It, that's how we oftentimes can go to the Bible, right? Where am I in this? Finding ourselves, but ultimately what we need to find in the Bible is Jesus, because the Bible is about Jesus. It's not about us. It's about Jesus. It's for us. Don't get me wrong. It's for us, but it's not about us. It's about primarily Jesus. So I can't overstate the importance of reading the Bible this way. Okay? This is way more important than understanding Greek and Hebrew. Way more important. This is way more important than going to seminary. Okay? You can read the Bible in such a way that you, you don't need those other tools. And I'm not saying those, those things are unimportant. We don't need those things. This is really important. When you open up your Bible, you need to be able to find Jesus. A and this takes practice. This takes time. Lean on God's Spirit. Ask Him to help you uh, to, to read the Bible in this way. Read the Bible with other people as well so that you can learn and practice how to find Jesus, how God is tying the whole story together. All right, with that said, I want to look at, uh, finish up here with just a few themes uh, from Hebrews and kind of some purposes or rationale uh, that we're going to encounter in Hebrews. And my hope here in this end section is to encourage you guys, to give you some hope about what we're going to find in the book of Hebrews. One major theme that occurs repeatedly throughout Hebrews is that of weariness and perseverance. So the negative being weariness, the, the positive uh, example of this is perseverance. So Hebrews was li likely written 10 to 30 years after Jesus left the earth. And what we find, what, what we can deduce from Hebrews is that many of the Jews had seemingly grown weary. They're weary. Hebrews describes them as having weak knees and drooping hands. They're tired. 
they're weary, tired of resistance, of opposition, tired of life, drawn to the old way of doing things, drawn to law and to legalism. They found themselves wandering from grace and wandering back to the things that cannot save themselves. So a question for you guys is, are you there? Are you there now? Are you weary? If you're not weary today, you have been or you will be weary. This is true for all of us. We all walk through seasons. Do you ever feel tired of living as a Christian? You've had enough of it. You don't know how you can do it anymore. You don't know how to do it. Are you, are you weary of community? Are you weary of prayer? Do you feel beaten down by life, by ailments? This is a problem all of us know intimately, more intimately than we would like to admit. But what's so interesting in Hebrews is how the author of Hebrews approaches this weariness. He doesn't have any quick fixes. He doesn't have three steps. What the author of Hebrews does is he preaches Jesus. He says, what you need is more Jesus. What you need is more gospel, more laser focus on the goodness of God. More understanding and grasp of God's love for you. It's not, well, if you hadn't made that choice, or work harder. It's Jesus is sufficient. He's done everything for you. Look at him. Trust in him. See, I think Hebrews is going to meet us in a place that's meaningful for us. It's clear that those who are receiving this letter, that they felt tension. This tension that Jesus had come and he had conquered sin and death and hell, and they still struggled with sin. They still felt afflicted by the powers of hell. They still felt death creeping in on them. This is a theological category known as already but not yet. Some of you maybe have heard this phrase. We live in the already but not yet so this is going to pop up throughout Hebrews. We see it as it pertains <coughs> to sanctification, which is the process of growing in holiness, becoming more holy. I came across this quote in uh, one of the commentaries I was reading this week as it speaks about sanctification and this already but not yet reality. Believers are already truly sanctified and set apart through Jesus Christ. And yet, they await the fullness of their sanctification, the completion of holiness that God intends for his people to enjoy. Christians are sanctified. They have been made holy by Jesus' sacrifice. And yet, Christians need to grow in their sanctification. It's an already reality but not yet fully fulfilled, not 
completed in its ultimate sense. We also see this with the concept of rest in Hebrews. Hebrews 4.3 says, For we who have believed entered that rest. So the idea being, you believe the gospel, you believe in Jesus, you can enter the rest that Jesus provides. Okay? That has happened for those who believe the Gospels. Yet, eight verses later, it says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. So there's this reality. Rest is accessible for you, but it's something we have to grow more into all the more. We have received many things already that we will more fully receive in the future. We have received many things already that we will more fully receive in the future. This is the already, but not yet. One reality that is undeniable through the book of Hebrews is that God cares about maturing the church. He cares about maturing the church. He cares about your growth. You being built up in the gospel. So he's not just concerned with conversion. Okay? He's not just concerned with getting you on his team. He saves, but then he keeps you. He continues to save as well. God and the author of Hebrews makes really clear that the things that we first believed need to be believed in greater and deeper ways. Those things we first believed need to be believed in greater and deeper ways. So it's not merely knowing Jesus never leaves us nor forsakes us, as we sang earlier. It's not just knowing that intellectually. It's actually living in a way that reflects that, that reflects you are believing and trusting in his faithful love for you. It's not simply knowing God is love and that his expression of love is far beyond anything else that you will see or experience or encounter in this world. It's allowing his love to shape your identity so that the ways you act each day aren't grasping for someone's attention. It's believing in his love, letting that shape your identity so that when you go and work out, it's not working out so that someone will think well of you or be impressed with how you look or when you go shopping and you buy certain clothes that you're not buying them so that you can impress someone, so that you can create some image for other people. It's delighting in what God has said about us and not us trying to impress other people. It's rooting ourselves in God's identity and what he says about us. It's trusting in God's love to an extent where it actually, literally, drives out fear. 1 John 4.18 says, God's perfect love drives out fear. It drives it out. And so the call in this is to believe the gospel. This is what Jesus has done. This is what's offered for us. Don't try and do that on your own. Come to Jesus. Let him do that for you. It's believing that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is sufficient to cover the worst of our sins. That there is nothing more that we need to do. Nothing more that we need to do to prove ourselves to God, to earn something from him. This is the gospel we must grow in. 
Jesus does it all. This is where our joy and our freedom are found. Not in us accomplishing things. Not in us possessing enough control and us ordering our lives in some certain way. It's believing in Jesus, who he is and what he has done. Not in us playing God. Because we suck at that, right? And it's stressful. It is stressful to play God. God knows that if we are not growing in the gospel, we are growing in something that is anti-gospel. If we are not growing in the gospel, if we're not maturing in the gospel, we are maturing in something that is anti-gospel. And Hebrews is going to call out these anti-gospels. And it's going to call us to explicitly look at Jesus. That's the answer. Look at him, the founder and the perfecter of your faith. You don't create your faith. Your faith comes from God. He gives it to you. He births it. And then he grows it as well. He's the one who's going to bring it to completion. So look at him. Don't look at all you have to do. Look at what he has done for you. And all that you need to do flows out of that. And the things you do, you don't need to do them to earn salvation. You're doing them because you have been saved. So the call for us over and over in Hebrews will be, look at Jesus. Look at him. Don't look at yourself. Don't look that length, at that lengthy to-do list that you have. Don't look at things that are vain, that are fleeting, that are temporary. Look at Jesus. He is what you need. He is what I need. He is what we corporately need. So believe it yourselves and preach it to one another. Remind one another we need Jesus. We need to look at him. Not in the mirror. Look at Jesus. Believe the gospel. That is what we need. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this book. Thank you for all that lies ahead of us as we will study the book of Hebrews. I pray, I ask that you would do great things in us as individuals. And I pray that you would do great things in us as a church. I pray that we would be captivated by your story. I pray that your grace would take hold of us and you would do things in us that we never thought possible. Would you, by the power of the gospel and by your gracious strength, accomplish things that we cannot accomplish in and of ourselves? Would you move us, tenderize our hearts so that we are willing to let you be God? Would you help us to relinquish playing God, pretending to be God, trying to be God. Would you have your way in us? And I pray that through our lives, then people would see the beauty of the gospel. That they would see a church that is unified around that which you say is most important. So rally us around your son. Help us to see Jesus for who he is. 
and accomplish the work that you want to accomplish. Be with us as we spend time talking about these sermons in our community groups as well, talking about these sermons with one another. I pray that you would help us to go deep, that the gospel would go to the deepest parts of us. It would expose idols in our hearts. It would root out things that are anti-gospels, that are killing us, that are sapping life from us. And I pray that we'd be a people reveling in your freedom and in your joy. Because that is what is found in the gospel. So lead us there. Lead us to your promised land. Lead us to your rest. In your great name I pray. Amen. Will you guys stand? We're going to take a moment. We're going to reflect.